Uh, as you're sitting, uh, if you took a bulletin today, uh, you want to pull out this little piece of paper. Uh, I really get excited at, when there's opportunities each year to serve our community in the name of Jesus. And one of the things that uh, we can do as a church family is provide shoes uh, for kids who don't have shoes when they start the new school year next year. And so I'd love for you uh, to join this effort. We want to donate 40 pairs of new tennis shoes for 40 students in our community. If you're the kind of person uh, that likes to go shop, then uh, go shop and buy some shoes. If you're the kind of person like me who would like other people to do your shopping for you, just give money. What a gift. Um, But we'd love for you to consider uh, giving shoes. Uh, Another just quick church update. We mentioned this last Sunday during the congregational uh, meeting, but I want you to know Uh, Those are part of this church family that next week we're going to introduce to you a person that we hope to plan to hire as our church planting staff member. Um, I think we might even have a picture of Ken. Uh, So you'll meet Ken next week, but Ken and Vicki Seide are uh, wanting to come and join the team in Anamosa and serve for a year to two to lay the foundation uh, for this church. And so next week, Ken will be here. Vicki will come in subsequent weeks. But Ken will be here. You'll be able to hear his testimony. You'll hear a little bit about why he's excited about coming and joining the Anamosa team. Uh, just want to say thanks to the Anamosa church, uh, people who have been searching for this person. Uh, Morgan Freed's given a lot of time to this. Kayla Beegler, Matt Rossman, and David Gardner have all spent time searching for a planter for about a year and made a lot of reference calls. And uh, excited to present him. So he'll be here on May 21st, uh, formally. And then he'll actually be back on the 4th and the 11th, informally, with his wife, Vicki. And then we hope to uh, have a congregational meeting on the 11th and officially hire him. So I'm excited for you to meet him. Those who haven't, those who have met him, are giving two enthusiastic thumbs up. So God has been faithful in that process. I want to turn our attention uh, to the book of Romans. We've been walking through this book of the Bible. We'll continue walking through it today. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 16, just so that you know all the verses we're going to address today, and then we'll come back and walk through them. Uh, Listen now to God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. 
And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place in the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. This is God's word. So on the front end, all moms, I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Being a mom is, is hard. I know it's especially challenging for my mom. And even though we have uh, wonderful kids in our home, I know it's an uphill battle for my wife many days as well. But speaking of kids, have you ever wondered why they don't come with a warning label? Seriously, everything comes with a warning label. My peanut butter jar says warning contains peanuts. But when these little children come out, there, there's no, 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 no warning label. For instance, do you know what the most embarrassing thing it is for a parent, for a mom in particular? It's not those inopportune visits to the bathroom, though those are embarrassing when they walk in on you. Nor is it when your little son is the ring bearer in a wedding and they wet their pants in front of all. Not that. I'm talking about those mom-child conversations where mom says, Honey, you shouldn't be on your phone so much. Get your head up and engage the world. And then your daughter says, whatever, mom, you're as bad as me. Or when mom says, George, I overheard your phone call. You told your friend you can't come because you have a family reunion on Saturday. That's a lie, honey. Why did you do that? And then George says, yeah, mom, kind of like when you lied to your boss this week and said you were sick. A warning label would have been nice. Now, today's message is not a Mother's Day. That's my one reference to moms. We'll move on. (laughs) We're taking the next passage in our study of Romans, and Romans is a message for every person. It's a message for dads and moms. It's a message for nine-year-olds and 19-year-olds. It's for Jewish people. It's for Gentile people. It's for secular people. It's for spiritual people. And and particularly what we're going to talk about today is... What the reality is when any human person dares to pass judgment on another person. Raise your hand if you judge someone this week. The rest of you are lying. (laughs) Now, there is a time and a place to make judgments. To speak what is right and wrong. But I want you to know what Paul is doing here is he's putting a warning label. When you do it you too will be held accountable. That's the warning label. We have to do it. We need to do it. But when you do it, be warned. And I'm going to give you kind of two sides of the warning here in Judges, excuse me, Romans chapter 2. Here's the warning. Your judgment is found faulty. But God's judgment is done rightly. That's the warning label. We have to do it. But guess what? Your judgment is going to be found faulty. God's will be rendered rightly. Now, before I start, though, I want you just to not miss the last thing Paul said in chapter 2, verse 16. The last thing he says in this section 
Paul says this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. What I want you to realize is that when Paul is speaking about final judgment, he's talking about when God will judge the thoughts and deeds of all people, he ties that to my gospel. Now, in churches like ours, it's pretty t- we, we love the gospel. We sing about the gospel. Uh, and sometimes we would summarize the gospel uh, as something like uh, the good news of Jesus Christ saving sinners through his death and resurrections. And that's, that is good news. That is the gospel. But it's not the only good news. In fact, if you pick up this week and you maybe read through the Acts of the Apostles, which is the history of the early church on the move through the work of the Holy Spirit, you'll observe that almost every message, every sermon recorded, always includes in the presentation of the gospel the reality of coming judgment. And so at the end of Peter's sermon, the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, He speaks about Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven where he will rule and reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And then he calls people and he says, save yourselves from this perverse and corrupt generation. Uh, Later, when Paul is in the house of Cornelius, uh, the first kind of sermon to a a Gentile, non-Jewish audience, he lets them know for certain that Jesus, through, because of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he is God's anointed one who will judge the living and the dead. And then when he's preaching to a totally kind of secular pagan audience in Athens, uh, it's recorded in Acts 17.30, he speaks about the final judgment this way. Acts 17.30 and 31 say this, In the past, this is Paul preaching, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Uh, So know this, Christians especially, if we are to preach the gospel, we will speak of God's certain and coming judgment through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We preach of the creation of God. We preach of the fall of man. We preach of the redemption through Jesus Christ. And then we point for it and say, there will be a consummation. There will be a restoration of all things. And in that, there will be judgment. Now, as soon as you speak of coming judgment, be forewarned, (laughs) your own judgments along the way will be held to account. And so what I want you to look at here in just this short section is Paul gives four reasons why human judgments are faulty. And then he's going to give us three reasons or three examples of why God's justice or God's judgment is done rightly. So if you're taking notes, the first thing you need to know why, why human judgment has a warning label, why it'll be found faulty is number one, when you judge, it can make you smug. When you judge, it can make you smug. So verse 1, Paul turns the corner, by the way. If you actually were with us these earlier sermons, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 32, uh, Paul has been speaking in the third person. He speaks of those out there, those sorts of people. And then... 
he, he does a rhetorical change, a rhetorical device. He now speaks to you. You. He's getting into our business. I had a great professor at Denver Seminary. His name was Craig Blomberg, brilliant scholar. And he'd be, he'd be teaching about the New Testament, and then he'd be teaching about the teachings of Christ, and then he'd be talking about your heart and about your life, and he'd say, you know, I know I'm supposed to be a teacher, but sometimes I like to preach. And then he says, but today I would like to meddle. Paul's meddling. And he's saying, when we judge, we get smug. And he says, you therefore, verse 1, have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. So here's the warning. Paul's saying, for some reason, when we start making a judgmental statement, we get very blind to our own faults. We miss that when we say, why are you always late? That we come late. Why do you yell? How many times have I done that to my kids? I walk into the living room, would you please stop yelling? And they just give me this weird look like, dad. Right? There's something when we make judgmental statements, we get smug. We, we, don't, we don't see what's going on. So somehow we have this moral position, and in our moral position, we get so high we can't see ourselves. Verse 2, it says, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And he warns, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? That's what a smug person thinks they're going to escape. They're fine. So in the ancient world, you had moralists. You know, some of the famous moralists in the Greco-Roman literature is Aristotle. He was a, he was a brilliant person about virtue. You can read his stuff on virtue. It's actually quite... Convicting. Uh, There's an ancient writer named Seneca. He was a moralist, and they would write pretty convicting and compelling ways to live righteously. And they kind of got themselves on a high pedestal, and they kind of looked down on everyone else. And if you read their stuff, you would join them at the top of the pedestal and be like, yeah, people are really bad. You know, we have modern moralists. you can, you can listen to Canada's Jordan Peterson. He has all sorts of ideas on how to live a wonderful life, especially for young men. Or you can watch The View, and like Whoopi Goldberg will tell you how to live your life. But anytime you get attached to any of those views, be, be warned, Paul says, you'll, get, you'll turn smug. You won't see your own identical behaviors in your life. But he goes from smug, and he says someone who's smug can also fall into a second trap, is then they become presumptuous. I'm fine because I know what's fine, and I'll be presumptuous, Think, and I'm going to escape judgment because I know the right thing. Verse 4 goes on. Verse 3 warns of presumption. 4 brings it home again where he says, don't you, or do you show contempt For the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So here's the contrast. Paul Paul is saying that that God's mercy should turn someone to live rightly, to, to turn and follow God's ways. But the moralist who has all the right answers for your life 
becomes presumptuous. They're not responding to God's kindness and patience. They're presuming on it. And when you begin to presume on God's kindness, it says you actually show contempt to God's kindness. So those who are like me, who have all sorts of opinions on how people should live, and sometimes they get to talk about it in a 35 to 40 minute monologue every week. Beware. It can make us smug. And it can make us presumptuous that we don't look at our own hearts. We don't look at our own lives. Another danger, smug, presumption. And then another thing that really slips into human judgment is it's often driven by favoritism. So in this case, Paul Paul warns, uh, uh, particularly it seems like the Jewish people, because he says, uh, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, it says you're actually storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person, so all people, according to what they have done. He says to those who actually persist in doing good, seeking glory, honor, immortality, he's going to give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. It says there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. Did you catch that? I'll read that again. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew. So the, the, you know, there's kind of secular moralists who have good moral teachings. But a Jewish moralist, moralist has the law of God. And it says even someone who has the right truths, the right commands, the right decrees, if they haven't humbled their heart and they're seeking the Lord God, they will be the first to experience God's judgment. Now, when you have your, when everybody has camps, right? In the first century, there was camps. You know, the big camps were Jew and Gentile. And then within the Jewish camp, you had the, uh, the kind of the Pharisees were as a camp. The Sadducees were their camp. There was another camp called the Essenes. And then there was kind of, you know, the people of the land. And they all thought their camp was okay. Maybe better than okay because they read the Bible better than the other person and they lived better than the other people. And they, they all were looking down on one another. And everybody had favoritism toward their themselves. And Paul is laying down like, that's not how it works. Verse 11 says, because God doesn't show favoritism. So we're tempted in our judgment to give favor. Uh, I mean, it, you all see this, you know, on the news. Like, we give a lot of grace to the members of our political party and, like, no grace to the members of the other political party. Or let's just go down a little bit lower, Iowa fans versus Iowa State fans. Like, whenever someone from your football team gets arrested, you make some blanket statement about, man, that whole team is a bunch of hoodlums. And then, like, next week, someone from your team gets arrested, and you're like, well, it's just one bad egg. And that's just, it's it's just this warning that when we start making judgments, it's really quick to like our sorts of people. Even if our sorts of people do the same thing as those sorts of people. Or when I do what those sorts of people do. So your judgment is faulty. It makes you smug. It leads to presumption. It's driven by favoritism. 
And then the last thing Paul warns is, even at best, it's conflicted. And he starts talking about the conscience. Uh, in verse 13, he says, uh, you know, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things require the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience are bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse them, and at other times even defend them. Right, so... Paul is teaching that there is, a, there is a place for the human conscience. The human conscience does trigger uh, feelings of shame and guilt. And on some occasions, appropriate shame and guilt. I know sometimes really struggle with, I feel really shameful. I'm going to go to some place where I shouldn't feel shame. Sometimes we're supposed to feel shame and guilt because we do wrong things. But even when he mentions the conscience, he says, and yet it's kind of a conflicted thing, this conscience. Sometimes it accuses you, and sometimes you use your conscience to defend you. Really, only God will judge things without any sort of conflict. It'll be a perfect, righteous judgment. And so even at best with our own conscience, like we don't get it right. Especially on matters of conscience, when we're judging other people's conscience, then we really don't get it right. There are many matters when it comes to Scripture that are matters of conscience. You know, the kind of food that you eat, the car that you buy, the home that you live in, or whether you own a home. And sometimes we love to turn our consciences on for you. And yet at best, our own conscience is kind of faulty and conflicted for ourselves. It's certainly going to be conflicted when I start judging other people <laughs> with matters of conscience. Again, we, 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 when we hear the, the warning about human judgment making a smug, leading to presumption, driven by favoritism, and even conflicted in and of itself, that I don't want anybody to say, all right, we're done judging. You know, Jesus says don't judge, right? That's not true. He actually says, uh, don't judge unless you're willing to be judged. And that's what Paul's saying too. Be prepared for your own judgment. Uh, in Second Timothy chapter 4, talking about the, the role of, of teaching. When we teach, we're supposed to teach all of God's word. Correct, rebuke. Right? That's, that's speaking with matters of judgment. Parents, uh, mothers, fathers, both, raise your kids up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Teach your kids right and wrong and hold them to it. Just know that once you begin to teach and correct, when you begin to make judgments, here's the warning label. You will be held to the same standard. You will be held to the same standard. That actually is what Jesus says back in Isaiah, excuse me, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Let me just remind you that Jesus says, uh, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's not a, it doesn't mean don't judge. It just says don't, don't judge with your head in the sand. Don't judge without looking at yourself in a mirror. And yet, Paul is going to come back here in the rest of 2 verses 1 through 16 and say, though human judgment will be found faulty, God's judgment will be rendered rightly. And that's the biggest emphasis I want you to see is that God's judgment 
will be rendered rightly. Let me give you three qualities Paul mentions about how God renders his judgment. The first one we already looked at briefly, but I want to bring it up again, is that it, God's judgment follows his kindness and patience. We looked at that in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God will render his righteous judgment, but it's after patience and forbearance, giving us opportunities to come to our senses and turn to the truth. And we don't want to um, we want to show contempt for such patience that God gives us to turn. Uh, sometimes people misunderstand God's patience and kindness as if he's never going to do anything. Uh, there's actually, when the Apostle Peter picks up the same idea in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 3, he, he, he actually mentions that some people are even scoffing about God's coming judgment. Let me just remind you of Second Peter chapter 3 verse 3. And following, Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You know, sometimes a new employee gets a job, and that boss is patient, right? They come late, he, he gives them a second chance. They, 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 they break some machine, but they didn't know better. So, so they give them another chance. At that point, you hope that new employee sees the graciousness of the boss. Because one or two more mistakes, they're going to get fired. In many of the ways, God in his mercy, he shows patience. We, we are not treated as our sins deserved. The, the hammer doesn't come down as hard as it should come down. But that's God's patience and kindness to lead us to repentance. Judgment will come. And when it's done, it'll be rendered rightly. But it comes after patience. Also, when it comes, it will be given. Second quality of God's judgment is it is done impartially. We saw that a little bit in verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. 
but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So Paul is declaring to the, 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 it's a mixed audience in the church of Rome. There's Jews present, there's Gentiles present. And he, to this mixed audience, he says, hey, judgment is coming for all. Uh, and God has rich promises for the Jews fulfilled in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And those who trust in him and follow him, they will be the first to enjoy the many blessings of knowing God and their Messiah. But he warns that there's actually a heavier and stricter judgment first for the Jew, for not responding to the Messiah that God had sent them in the form of Jesus Christ. They will have a stricter judgment because they should have known, they should have seen him. Uh, Jesus said the same thing, if you want to turn back in your Bibles this time, to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is going to talk to some Jewish cities who uh, saw his ministry, they saw his miracles, they saw his teaching, and yet they didn't respond. They thought that maybe they were okay because they were Jews, but in reality, they were given the same opportunity to respond to the Messiah sent to them. And so these are Jesus's words. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty says, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. So he names two cities in Israel. And then he names two cities outside of Israel. Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida of Israel. If the miracles performed had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, really pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Remember, God is impartial in his judgment. To whom much has been given, much is required. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will be, go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Right? God's judgment is impartial. To those who have been given the greatest signs and seen the greatest miracles, been given the greatest amount of truth, and they reject it, there will be a greater consequence. This is why it's so important for every person, when God gives you truth, when, when God speaks to you through your own reading of the word, or someone teaching you the truth, or, or sometimes you experience truth in the school of hard knocks. Like Those are gifts to turn us to the Lord God, not to become smug, not to become presumptuous. Because in the end, we'll be held account for what we know and how we responded to what we know. God's judgment is rendered rightly, follows patience. It's marked by impartiality. And then verses 12 through 16 just speak to the idea. It's always measured with, with perfect fairness. Let Just hear verses 12 uh, through 15. Again, he's, he has these two uh, audiences mind, right? The kind of the, the pagan Gentiles and then the the law, the, Jew, the Jews who have been given the law of God. 
And he says, it's all going to be fair in the end. Because all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. And then verse 16, it does to say, this will take place. So this fair and final judgment will take place when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So God's going to do this fairly. Um, I, I watched the National Football League, and a number of years ago, they implemented this thing that after a play that's really controversial, they can, they can send it up to the booth. And they can get video evidence. And so was the ball really intercepted? Did the other team actually capture the ball and hold on to the ball when they landed? And they, they go and they look, they watch the video and they watch it from about 10 different angles. And then the referee will come forward and say, you know, that after the challenge, we confirm that the, inter, the interception occurred. Ball is going to change hands. At, at the end of time, you will, you will have no excuse. It will be done fairly. God has more than 10 camera angles. And if you caught verse 16, he even gets into the secrets of our hearts. So he's not just judging the activity done on the outside of our lives. He's also looking at the motivations of our hearts. And the things that we think about when nobody else is weighing in. And we'll be judged fairly impartially, after much patience. So as we move to a close, let me just think through some applications for each of us. Big idea of what, what, how do you respond to a message like this? Uh, right? Accept the warning and seek peace with God. There is this warning label. Your, your judgments will be found faulty and God's will be rendered rightly. So, Heed the warning and then seek peace with God. I want to talk to four types of people. First, I want to talk to the over-anxious Christian. You're the one that have been listening this whole time and you have just felt, you, you, you came in at five foot five and now you're two inches tall. You're, the whole time, Pastor Matt, I'm a horrible, wicked, no good person. In First John 3.20, it talks about that our hearts condemn us, but then it makes this promise, but God is greater than our hearts. Right, to that over-anxious Christian who's just conscience-stricken at this very moment, Jesus Christ died for your sin. All of it. Forgiven and set free you are. At the end of time, you will be judged. But if Christ stands in your place, the judgment has already fallen on the cross. And you rise in the same resurrected uh, uh, glory as the son someday. And you'll be declared a son and daughter of God. And so to the over-anxious Christian who just feels two inches tall, you need to know that God is greater even than the heart that's convicting you. 
and you trust in him and he forgives and he welcomes and he restores. But maybe you're not over-anxious Christian. You're an unconcerned non-Christian. I, I don't believe in judgment. Well, you might not believe in judgment like my wife doesn't believe in speed cameras on 380 through the heart of Cedar Rapids. You can feel like they're not there, but guess what? There's signs that tell you they're there, and there are big cameras that capture pictures of your license plate if you're going a certain speed. What I'm saying is, to the unconcerned non-Christian, judgment is something you can push off for a long time, but it doesn't mean it's not really there. In fact, this is one of the realities of Jesus' resurrection is to declare this is the anointed one. He has all authority to judge the living and the dead, and he is dead, and he is coming back. So there's the over-anxious Christian, the unconcerned non-Christian. Let me just also speak to the, the overconfident Christian. And I think that might be the person that like Paul has in his sights for most of Romans 2, 1 through 16. I I have all the answers. I listen to all the right podcasts. I read all the good pastors. I don't listen to those bad pastors. I read the good pastors and the good systematic theologians. We will be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of a judgment for Christians. We will be judged. We will be held to account. How we speak and how we live will be judged. That should give us a lot of humility, even as we hold right truths. And the way that we live and honor Christ should be represented that we know that we will face judgment one day. And so let's do that with a a sense of humility. You who think you are standing strong, it says, watch out. Watch out. And then finally, just to the desperate seeker. Someone who's maybe felt the weight of this and has never trusted in Christ. Again, in 1 John, there's this invitation. It it talks about you have to come into the light. Sometimes when we start feeling conviction of sin and sometimes we start kind of feeling our secrets being exposed under God's righteous judgment, we're tempted to hide in the dark. But what's the amazing promise is that when you come into the light, when you set yourself before God's holiness, it says there the blood of Jesus forgives sin. Jesus died to forgive us of the things that we do in the dark. But if we hide in the dark, if we refuse to come out and accept God's judgment for our lives, we'll never be forgiven. We'll never have peace. And so my invitation to you who are feeling the weight of conviction, come into the light and and then receive the blood of Jesus that forgives and cleanses. One last thought. Have you ever really wanted something? Like maybe to buy something? You actually tell your friends you're going to buy it. but But finally you get it and you're just almost embarrassed that you bought it. I think that's what my grandma felt like when she bought the clapper in the 1980s. There was this device years ago that if you clapped, like your lights would come on, or if you clapped, your your TV would turn off. But my grandma bought this. I don't. We thought like her grandkids thought this was really cool, but she hated it because she actually tried to put it on her TV. And if there was clapping on the TV, the TV would shut off. 
Um, what, what I want to bring home is that if you are still trusting in your faulty conscience, if you're still trusting in your faulty sense of justice and judging other people, I just want you to take that back to the store and just say, I haven't done this rightly. I have been misusing this. I've been hurting myself and I've been hurting others. I'm coming to you, God, and admitting, man, I've done this so faultily. And I'm going to let you be the judge again because you render judgment rightly. You do it now, you'll do it in the future, and to the glory of God, we'll let you continue to be the king and the Lord and the judge. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for your mercy. I'm just thinking even as when we, when we do this, when we come back and let you be judge, we let, we let you be king, we come kind of in the shame and embarrassment of, when we've, of our own smugness and presumption. On the backside of that humbling and confession of sin, we have this tender father who receives his child and says, Hush, little child. Because of the death of my son, you are safe in my arms. And so we want to come back into the father's arms. We want to live under his perfect, righteous judgments. And we want to just seek peace again with you. We'll go out, Lord, and we know we'll have to render judgments. It will never be done perfectly, um, but even in humility now, we just come again saying, forgive us, cleanse us, receive us again. In Christ's name, amen.